Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. We often hear the claim that the Council of Nicaea in 325 was the first time that the books of the New Testament were decided on and canonized for the first time, or that it was at this point that the doctrine of the Trinity and you know, Christianity as we know it was quote-unquote made up. Now, neither of these statements are true, and the first one is especially false. In fact, the Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with which books were to be included in the Bible. That isn't to say that it wasn't important. It was very important. The Council of Nicaea, in fact, is one of the most important moments, at least a starting point to one of the most important moments in the history of Christianity. Uh, but there is so much misinformation and misunderstanding surrounding this topic, like, for example, the things I just mentioned, that people think that it was here that the, the, the Bible was decided on, like it was canonized, which is simply not true. What the Council of Nicaea was about was establishing the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, um, uh, you know, uh, coming to a kind of official theological position within Christianity. Now, that isn't to say that all of Christianity accepted this particular doctrine after Nicaea. In fact, not at all. This was a much longer process. But still, the Council of Nicaea is a very important starting point for the formulation of what we you know, would come to know as mainstream or orthodox Christianity. But the Trinity as a basic idea was already well established by this time when the Council was held. What was disagreed upon was just how the divine life functioned, especially the relationship between the Father, God, and the Son identified with Christ. As many know, this was very much in response to a certain intellectual debate that was raging at that time, and particularly against a specific quote-unquote heresy known as Arianism. There is significant misunderstanding about Arianism itself and the debate that was had around it. So in this episode, well-timed to the Christmas season, I thought we'd discuss one of the 
biggest controversies in early Christianity, uh, a theological intellectual debate that would serve or, or be the catalyst for much of Christianity as we know it in many ways. The early history of Christianity is one of the most interesting and yet misunderstood topics in this entire field. We've spoken about this period and its complexities in many earlier videos, but it's worth going through some of the basics. The classic Christian retelling of the events is a confessional one, based on the fact that an orthodoxy was established eventually, and it thus sees the events of early Christianity as simply the process in which the quote-unquote true church defeated a bunch of heresies. From a historical scholarly point of view, this version of events cannot be upheld without significant nuancing. The idea that there was a unified quote-unquote orthodox church from the very beginning, from Jesus' death and the apostles, and which was safeguarded by a group of true Christians over the centuries against a bunch of heresies that diverged from this true teaching before orthodoxy became formally established with the church councils, is simply not true. Early Christianity, or the Jesus movement as it is often called, was chaotic and messy. There was no unified church, but a whole explosion of different ideas, thinkers, and schools of thought. My colleague Andrew Henry from the channel Religion for Breakfast refers to it in one of his videos as a supernova of Jesus' movements, or Christianities in the plural, in this early period, which I think is a fitting image. Various different Christians and non-Christian followers of Jesus tried to figure out what Christ's mission meant, and they all came up with a whole plethora of different perspectives. Some saw Jesus as a human prophet and not divine at all, such as the Ebionites. Others, that he was fully divine and not human at all, which, like the Gnostics, for example, while still others tried to tackle positions in between. Some wanted to still follow the Jewish law, others didn't. Some even rejected the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible entirely and saw the God of the Old Testament as an evil pseudo-deity that had tricked humanity into worshipping him, namely the group that came to be known as the Gnostics. And for centuries, things remain this way. There isn't a Christianity, but various different Christianities. Scholars are even skeptical of the idea that there was even necessarily schools of thought as such, at least in the earliest period, but a messy exchange of different ideas and perspectives on all conceivable topics. Eventually, over the centuries, certain ideas of course became more popular and widely accepted than others, and certain scriptures also were increasingly seen as canonical or not. This is why, by the time of the Council of Nicaea, a kind of canon was already present, because certain texts, such as the four Gospels in the New Testament, were just simply the most popular out of all these different scriptures that were going around. Similarly, the theological tenets of Christianity developed over the centuries too, such as the idea of the divine as somehow consisting of three principles, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From a certain perspective, one can argue that such ideas and readings of scripture were very much in conversation with the philosophical traditions that were popular at that time, such as Platonism and others, which often had a three-part scheme of higher realities too. Just look at Plotinus and the Neoplatonists, their one-new-soul hypostases, for example. But that isn't to say that because these terms and general ideas were present, that the Nicene form of the Trinity as we know it existed in earlier periods. When we read early church fathers like Origen, we can surely see traces of what would become the Trinitarian doctrine, at least in some aspect. But to say that Origen upheld Nicene Trinity, that would be orthodox in later history, is simply untenable, for example. In other words, these ideas develop over time. Now, that isn't to say that they aren't necessarily true. 
we're not making a confessional argument here. That's not our place. That's not what this is for. What we're doing is looking at this from a historical perspective. Uh, and from that perspective, we can see that these ideas develop or are at least formulated in, conversa in conversation with each other, different groups and schools, but also with outside um, thinkers and, and schools of thought as well, such as Platonism, for instance. It's, it's, a, it's, a, and it's an environment where a lot of stuff is happening intellectually, and we can see that many of these ideas are formulated and, and, uh, and sort of emerge in that and through that environment. And this is why Arius and Arianism are so interesting. Because the Arian controversy, as it is often known, comes at a decisive moment in the formation of the church. This is right at the time when some of those central doctrines were being formulated or standardized, and this process would very much culminate in the great councils, starting with the one in Nicaea. And think of it this way, the council of Nicaea wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the Arian controversy. It is because of this debate that these Christians and Constantine felt the need to define what they actually believed in contrast to what was seen as heresy, or what would become seen as heresy. As is often the case, self-identity is based on identifying oneself in distinction to the other, in this case, the Arians. But this also becomes one of our main obstacles in studying Arius and the Arians. Who was Arius and what did he and his followers, maybe sympathizers, actually believe? Well, the problem is that the vast majority of our sources come from what would become the Orthodox. In other words, the enemies of Arius. And this carries with it the usual problems that we often find. Arius and his ideas are identified as the extreme other, as the kind of arch-heretic, demonically inspired misleader of the people. As such, these sources aren't always that concerned with giving a fair or comprehensive representation of what his actual doctrine was. But based on careful reading of these sources, as well as some less problematic ones, we can try to understand more properly the origins of this controversy and what it was all about. Arius seems to have been from Libya originally, born sometime before the year 280. He dedicated most of his life to theological and intellectual pursuits, and stories say that he studied in Antioch under the teacher Lucian, which many considered to be a key source for his own doctrines. He later moved to Alexandria in Egypt, though, a city which he would be associated with for the rest of his life. This place was a key center for Christianity at that time, and for a lot of other activities too. Alexandria in the first few centuries AD is one of the most interesting places in history where so much is happening at the same time. In any case, Arius became a quite prominent presbyter and priest in one of the areas of the city. But controversies erupted, and his own theological ideas seems to have created tension with other Christian leaders in the city, including and perhaps especially the bishops Peter, Alexander, and eventually Athanasius. And from around the year 318, the Arian controversy properly sort of started, and we can follow this chain of events through a number of letters and writings, written both by Arius and his supporters and by his critics, such as Alexander, the, the bishop of Alexandria, and even the emperor Constantine himself. During this controversy, Arius was excommunicated from Alexandria, he found refuge and support in Palestine and Syria, and continued to argue for his case through discourses with the clergy in Egypt. Arius seems to have been very charismatic and popular among a wide range of people, and perhaps because of this, because he had so many supporters around you know, the, the Mediterranean region, he seems to have at one point returned to Alexandria, but by that point, the church in that city was basically in a state of chaos and unrest. 
For the Emperor Constantine, who had just made Christianity a legal religion in the Roman Empire, this wasn't a good look. A divided church was a liability to the empire in many ways, and so he made the decision that would reverberate throughout history by calling the Council of Nicaea in 325 to solve this controversy and once and for all determine what the creed of Orthodox Christianity was to be. But what was this controversy all about? What were these doctrines and ideas of Arius and his sympathizers that would be discussed in this council and which were so controversial at this time? Well, first of all, we should be careful not to see this as some kind of unique school of thought founded by Arius himself. He did become a figurehead of sorts during the controversy, for sure, due precisely to the controversy in Alexandria itself, which he was part of, but Arius was only one figure that represented a general attitude towards Christology at that time. And there were many others who supported Arius, thus being deemed Arians at that time, such as Eusebius of Nicomedia and Eusebius of Caesarea. These and later supporters all stood behind Arius, not as some kind of absolute authority or a leader, but simply on the basis of his orthodoxy, that he believed in a legitimate version of what the divine is. So we should be careful to not see him as some sort of leader of a school of thought, but that the Arians, that what became known as the Arians, those who supported him, simply supported his orthodoxy. They believed that Arius was an orthodox Christian. His beliefs fitted into uh, right belief within the Christian fold, so to say. Rowan Williams writes, quote, Arianism as a coherent system founded by a single great figure and sustained by his disciples is a fantasy. More exactly, a fantasy based on the polemic of Nicene writers, above all Athanasius. Some anti-Nicenes may, in the early days, have been happy with the name of Arians as a designation of their theological preferences, not their ecclesiastical allegiance, but it is most unlikely that they would have been content with such a name for long after Nicaea. Arianism was neither a church nor a connection in its own eyes. Arians thought of themselves, naturally enough, as Catholics, or, more accurately, the very wide spectrum of non-Nicene believers thought of themselves as mainstream Christians, and regarded Athanasius and his allies as isolated extremists. Though, increasingly, they also looked on the more aggressive anti-Nicenes, Aetius, Eunomius, and, and the like, as no less alien to the mainstream of Catholic tradition. In fact, the later quote-unquote Arians and what's often known as Neo-Arians, could significantly disagree and adjust the ideas of Arius in different ways, even though they remain consistent in some basic features, and especially in contrast to the Nicene formulations of the Trinity. So again, what are these foundations of so-called Arianism? As we said, the debate at this time, and which was had at the Council, uh, was essentially one about the nature of the divine and the nature of the Trinity, particularly what is the relationship between the Son and the Father. So the Son as in Jesus Christ and God the Father. What is the nature of their relationship? Um, and already we should dispel some common misconceptions about this. Um, Arians did not believe that Jesus was a, a just a, simply a human being. Uh, similar to what Muslims believe, that Jesus was just a human prophet or something like that. That was not what this debate was about. Everyone involved agreed that, that Jesus was divine, that Jesus was God in some way. Um, but the question was, in what way was he God? Or rather, if he's divine, how is he divine in relationship to, to the Father, to God the Father? 
we might be able to perhaps um, compare this to another early debate in, in or I should say, an, a debate in early Islam, in Islamic theology, uh, about the nature of the Qur'an. So there was this famous debate between the uh, Mu'tazila, which is a sort of uh, theological school, an early theological school in Islam, and what is uh, very broadly sometimes referred to as the traditionalists. Um, and the Mu'tazila believed that the Qur'an was created, whereas the traditionalists believed that it was uncreated. And here it was never a question of whether, you know, the Qur'an was the literal word of God. They all agreed that the Qur'an was the word of God. Uh, what was the question was wh whether did God create the Qur'an as his speech at a particular time, just as he creates other things in the world, or is the Qur'an the sort of uncreated eternal speech of God that exists with God before creation? So in many ways, this is a very similar kind of theological debate uh, that is had here with Jesus. They all agree that Jesus is divine, but in what way is he divine? There's, there's sort of different levels of, of how much the Son is identified with, with God the Father. The Bible seems to say that the Father begets the Son, that he's born from the Father in some way. This, to Arius and his supporters, seemed to indicate that the Son comes about after the Father. He comes from the Father, thus not being completely of the same substance as the Father. They're not the same thing. In other words, the Son, Jesus, is subordinate to the Father. He comes from the Father and thus stands on a level slightly under him rather than being of the exact same essence, so to say. To the Arians, to say that the Father and the Son, as well as the Holy Spirit, are of the same essence, homo usios, compromise the idea of the unity of God too much. Instead, that which is begotten from the Father must come after the Father, not in a temporal sense of being created at a later date, since Arius seems to argue that the Son is somehow co-eternal with the Father, at least in some sense, at least existing before creation. So he doesn't come after the Father temporally, but ontologically. There are a few sources that are often directly attributed to Arius himself. The first is a confession of faith written to Alexander of Alexandria, the bishop that he had a sort of constant beef with. Secondly, there is a letter written to Eusebius of Nicomedia, one of his uh, supporters. And thirdly, there is a confession submitted by Arius to the emperor Constantine himself. There is also a text referred to as the Thalia, which is often seen as the most important source for the teachings of Arius and exists only in second-hand mentions and fragments. But in his confessions to Constantine, where he is trying to argue for his own orthodoxy, he says very clearly that the Son is, quote, produced by the Father before all ages, and that all things are made through this Son. This should significantly nuance what the Arian teaching actually was, or perhaps rather what it was not. It was not a denial of Christ's divinity, as is clearly seen here. In the letter, Arius states that he believes in the Trinity, and that Trinitarianism is indeed based on Scripture. He affirms belief in the three hypostases of the divine, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this might be surprising to some, but it shouldn't be. Arius, as we can see, simply believed that the relationship between the persons of the Trinity had a different relationship than the Nicene group did. Although aside from this issue, we can of course find other ways in which he diverges from would-be orthodoxy too. Above all, Arius wanted to safeguard God's uniqueness and timelessness. If the Son is of the same essence or substance as the Father, as the Nicene Creed holds, that seems to compromise this nature of God. Because a Son comes from a Father, 
He is begotten from the Father. Thus, there is change in the Godhead. So what then is the point of the begetting and the father-son relationship that's mentioned in the Bible if that relationship doesn't mean what it does? The one comes from the other, being created by it and thus standing below it in some way. If the son is identical to the father in that way, that seems to compromise his timelessness because the son comes from the father at some point, you could say, although this point is before creation, as we saw. In the Thalia, the ideas of Arius are presented in relatively clear ways. He says that, quote, so God himself is inexpressible to all beings. He alone has none equal to him or like him, none of like glory. We call him unbegotten on account of the one who by nature is begotten. We sing his praises as without beginning because of the one who has a beginning. We worship him as eternal because of him who was born in the order of time. The one without beginning established the Son as the beginning of all creatures. And having fathered such a one, he bore him as a son for himself. He, the son, possesses nothing proper to God in the real sense of propriety, for he is not equal to God, nor yet is he of the same substance, homo osios. Pretty clear statement against some of the key features of the Nicene Creed, including the idea of homo osios. The son is not of the same essence as the father. The son is created by the father. He is a creature. Not in the sense of creatures here on earth, but as something created, not part of the essence of the pure eternal Godhead. He is, and this is the key term in Arianism, subordinate to the Father. These ideas become even more clear later on in this text. Quote, the Father is other than the Son in substance, because he is without beginning. The Father, that is. You should understand that the monad always was, but the dyad was not before it came to be. At once, then, you see that the Father is God even when the Son does not exist. So the Son, not existing eternally, since he came into being by the Father's will, is God the only begotten, and he, the, maybe the Holy Spirit, is different from both. For sure, the Son is special among creation, even divine or God in some way, as the text seems to suggest. He is the first thing created, the word from which all other things are created but he has no power other than that given to him by the Father. He is, again, subordinate to the Father. This is basically the gist of Arius's theology. There's, of course, a lot more nuance and other details that we could discuss, but that's probably beyond the scope of this episode. So that's, that's, that's the basic idea. That is what he believed, and that is at least some version of that is what many of his sympathizers or followers believe, the Arians, uh, and which was so controversial and... Um, rejected by the Nicene Creed and eventually became rejected by mainstream Christianity as a whole. The Council of Nicaea instead came up with the so-called Nicene Creed, which states that the Father and Son are homoousios, they are of the same substance or the same essence, which is something that Arius and his followers here reject outright. They say this is, they believe that that was heresy, right? But the Nicene Creed established this as, as, as the correct creed, so to say. And Arius wasn't actually present at the, at the Council of Nicaea. However, some of his supporters were, like the, the previously mentioned uh, Eusebi, the, the two Eusebiuses um, that were seen as, as Arians. But even though the Nicene Creed was established during this council, that did not mean that that became, just became accepted by everyone. In fact, the story about this is, is a lot more messy. The whole Nicene formulation kind of falls apart right after the council takes place for various reasons. 
and so the story is not over yet. In fact, at first, the council didn't have much of an impact at all. Some supporters of Arius and Arius himself were indeed exiled, but eventually, with new controversies in the Church of Alexandria, their case was basically reopened. Arius was invited to return and defend his case in Constantinople, and it seems that in the end he was considered orthodox once again and was to be given communion again. But very dramatically, he died in Constantinople in 336, some say the very day before he was to be reinstated into the church. Although the stories do kind of diverge here, we don't know exactly what happened or when it happened. He might have already been re reinstigated, like accepted back into the, into the church again before he died. We simply don't know. Although many of his enemies will, of course, use this particular story that he died the day before as a kind of uh, sign that God said, like, no, you don't, right? That that was a sign of his, of his heresy in a certain sense. So this significantly alters our common image of the situation, but it's important to remember. The Council of Nicaea didn't really decide anything. Quickly afterwards, it was abandoned and many emperors turned to Arianism. Future councils, such as the Council of Tyre in 335, even accepted Arianism as the official creed. It wasn't really until the Council of Constantinople in 381 that a granted a modified version of the Nicene Creed, kind of finally and officially became the orthodox position. So things are more complicated than we like to imagine. The Creed of Arius and the quote-unquote Arians, or more accurately the people that simply didn't agree with the Nicene formulation of Christian theology, who in themselves could be varied in their doctrines, was seen as legitimate by many people and for a long period of time. Indeed, looking at the earlier history of the church, such theologies are kind of the norm, if we're being honest. Some of the earliest theologians and philosophers of Christianity, such as Clement of Alexandria and Origen, all seem to hold a kind of subordinationist theology, just like Arius did. We should also point out once again that the whole category of Arianism is also somewhat problematic. Since he eventually became seen as the arch-heretic, the term Arian was used to denote basically anyone that disagreed with the Nicene Creed, even though they could be quite different from each other. We even sometimes refer to the so-called Neo-Arians as a continuation of this tradition in the later 4th century. The discussions continued to rage over the century, and the Arian position was also modified and changed in different ways. So even though we did go through the Creed of Arius in particular before, these formulations are not necessarily upheld by all other quote-unquote Arians, especially in later periods. Instead, what unifies this group is the general rejection of the homoousios formulation at Nicaea, and instead the affirmation of the subordination of the Son to the Father in the divine, the divine life, so to say. We could, of course, continue this discussion for a long time, um, I am not a Christian theologian, and neither am I necessarily even an expert on Christian theology, so I have in no way done proper justice to these topics and all the intricacies of this topic, but I hope at least I've given you a more nuanced understanding of this early controversy and perhaps dispelled some misconceptions and common um, ways that people misrepresent this topic and, and, and subject often online on social media and so on. Um, there is just so much misinformation about Arianism, about the Council of Nicaea in particular. The Council of Nicaea, like one of, again, one of the most popular things that we hear is that the Council of Nicaea decided on the New Testament canon. That that is when the books of the New Testament and the Bible were decided on 
and before that there were no there was nothing of the sort. This is simply not true. This Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with this. Neither did the Council of Nicaea come up with the Trinity. The idea of the Trinity and its basic features existed before that, but there were different, as we see, different perspectives on what the relationship within that Trinity was. I mean, that isn't to say that everyone believed in a trinity. Of course they didn't. The, the Gnostics don't have the trinity, for example. But, but many Christians already had that kind of idea. And the Council of Nicaea it only sort of formulates that into what would eventually become the Orthodox position on the trinity. Um, the Orthodox way of looking at the trinity in a sort of theological, uh, philosophical way. And even then, the Council of Nicaea was not the decisive point when that became orthodoxy. Instead, it was the starting point of a, of, a, of, a, of a process that continued for the rest of the 4th century, and even, arguably, even beyond the 4th century, before it became firmly established as the orthodoxy, as the orthodox position. So things are significantly more complicated and nuanced than we are often led to believe. In this whole discussion, we find the fasting ideas of Arius and the so-called Arians, or again, perhaps more accurately, the anti-Nicene Christians, whose doctrines are similarly misrepresented by Christians and non-Christians alike. Hopefully, this episode has, in some way, dispelled some of those misunderstandings and given you a better overview of the formation and development of Christianity as we know it. I hope you have a good holiday season. Happy holidays, everyone, and I'll see you next time. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.